And welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus and I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Jonathan Marcus. So before we get into today's episode, I wanted to tell you guys about our exciting High Performance West Academy of Scholarship program, which is our catch-all um, education system where John and I go deep on everything from training to psychology to coaching to the history of sport um, to the evolution of training, everything and anything covered. So it's our attempt at redefining coaches' education in the endurance sport world. So if you haven't checked it out, please do so. Link is in the show notes at scienceofrunning.com. You can find all sorts of information. If you have any questions on it, if you just want to try it out, let us know. We'll help you out. So High Performance West Academy of Scholarship, more updates coming. Stay tuned. But if you haven't joined yet, join the over 250 other coaches. Get the interaction with them. Get the interaction with us and up your coaching game. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode, which I'm really excited about, which is a interview with Roger Pilkey Jr. Now, who is Roger? He has a PhD in political science and is a professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder. At CU, he started the Sports Governance Center in the, within the Department of Athletics. And what that was is doing what Roger does best, which living at the intersection of science, policy, and sport. And if you follow Roger on Twitter, which I highly recommend, you can see his wide-ranging expertise from everything from doping in sport to um, testifying at Ka the Castor-Semenya case um, to what we're currently dealing with, which is the NCAA and playing college sports during a pandemic, and more so, how the NCAA might change. And that's what we're really going to focus our topic on today with Roger, is he's going to answer some of those questions that I think we're all thinking about, is has this pandemic accelerated the case for NCAA college sports changing? What might that look like? And, you know, where are we headed in the future? So we'll dive into all those topics and more without further ado. Let's get to the interview. Roger, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Steve. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one because uh, it is an interesting moment in history, an interesting moment in college sports. So let's kind of start with outlining where we are at this moment as we record this podcast, because I'm sure things will change day to day. So, John, you want to have a stab at that? Well, I'd really actually really like to hear Roger's point of view, um, since you're the expert, like how we got to this moment, because I think, you know, more than anything, what I'm hearing is all this moment that we are experiencing with the pandemic and these mass cancellation of seasons and or the consideration of the seesaw back and forth between should a revenue generating sport like football at the NCAA level go on or not, um, you know, it's just accelerated what was this slow drip towards this crosshairs, but now we're, we're thoroughly in it 
and we have to address these issues uh, or the NCAA has to address these issues and therefore administrators, coaches, and student athletes present and future must be cognizant of it. So yeah, Roger, why don't you take a stab at that and orient us about how we got here and how the pandemic and lockdown accelerated everything. Yeah. It's, um, everybody's aware that, you know, we're in the middle of a global pandemic um, and it's severity and, and future are contested in, in some respects. Um, but what's clear is that in March um, universities uh, across the United States decided to sh- basically shut down their in-person instruction. Um, and along with that, we saw NCAA tournament, college basketball um, in particular, but all spring sports canceled. Um, the pandemic um, has been, and this is another topic I study, but it's been badly, badly mishandled um, in the United States and it's uh, ongoing. And so we're seeing you know, 1,000, 1,500 deaths per day right now nationwide. And universities, you know, set aside sports, universities are facing decisions about whether and how many students to allow on campus. And they're making very different sorts of decisions um, across the country. My university, University of Colorado Boulder, um, is going to have a majority of students in in-person classes. Um, so the decision had to be made um, by um, conferences, by the NCAA, by individual institutions across the various levels of college sports. And as we've seen um, right now, um, uh, most um, college football is is not going to be played. Um, The Atlantic Coast Conference and the Southeastern Conference, um, and for now the the Big 12 are are pressing ahead. Um, Every other fall sport um, has been um, put on hold, um, including uh, Pac-12 football. Um, and the ACC, um, also pressing ahead. So it's, um, (laughs) we're at a moment where, um, it's a lot of uncertainty, um, and college sports is at a crisis point because as I'm sure we'll talk about, um, football is a huge revenue source for athletic departments. Yeah, let's go into that. Let's talk about the revenue structure. Um, you know, and like one big strike happened with the lack of the NCAA tournament for men's uh, college basketball. And now we're having potentially lack of revenues from either football games, football conferences, and potentially even bowl games and the, um, you know, championship football playoff system. But, you know, maybe I think it's really important that we kind of understand how we got to this revenue structure moment. And then, you know, from a historical perspective, because it wasn't always like this, right? In the, you know, uh, mid 1900s, there was a little bit um, more equity between all the um, different sports, the uh, pay grades that coaches had. But now we've really come to this point of inequality that has accelerated over the last, I'd say, what, 25, 30 years, um, because maybe we were playing more of a short-term game with seeing just mass revenues being accelerated through football and basketball. But now those revenues aren't there, and it's almost like no one has a plan B. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, so the first thing for people to understand, and I don't think it's widely appreciated, is that the the revenues that come into college sports via the NCAA are only basketball. The NCAA does not uh, oversee college football, um, and the television contracts uh, with conferences – um, are the main route of uh, revenue generation 
um, through football um, and including now the college football playoff. So the NCAA actually does not oversee or govern college football. Um, and, you know, remarkably, um, if you take the long view, um, things haven't really changed that much in the landscape of college sports. In the 1890s, uh, the, the football coach of Yale made more than the college president in terms of salary. Um, it, and there's always been inequities. Um, what has really changed really since about 1980 is the importance of television revenue, um, which has just been growing and growing as um, college sports is immensely popular. Obviously, March Madness um, and the college football um, playoff have taken things to a new level. So it is um, now fairly common for athletic departments um, to have budgets of $100 million and more, um, a few over $200 million. So there is, there is um, you know, in, in compared to things like, like Apple and, and Microsoft and so on. Uh, college sports is not big money, but in the context of the um, landscape of sport, um, it is every bit as big as uh, Major League Baseball or the NFL and, and so on. It's, it's, it's a big deal in the sports world. So I think you mentioned something that key that is key for this moment, which is that conferences get the uh, TV revenue for football. NCAA for basketball divides that up. How big of a role do you think that plays in this current uh, difference in terms of decision-making leading that we're seeing right now during the pandemic with conferences with going one way, the NCAA leadership now stating something else? Um, how, how much of a role do you think that plays in terms of that, that battle back and forth? Yeah, I think there's a couple significant factors at play. Um, Obviously, the revenue associated with college football is an important consideration for, um, for example, the, the SEC deciding to, go, to press ahead or the Big 12 with their seasons. Uh, I would say um, that's not the only factor. Obviously, college football has a huge cultural role in our society, and particularly in the Southeast, um, more so than, say, here in Colorado. Um, so it's, it's money is important, but it's not certainly not the only factor. Um, you, you might recall in the last several days, um, Scott Frost, who's the head coach of Nebraska, um, expressed some considerable disappointment, um, anger at seeing the Big Ten season canceled and, you know, started making some noises that we're going to leave the Big Ten. We're going to, um, we're going to join the, you know, another conference, um, very quickly, the, the the president and chancellor of the University of Nebraska um, put out a statement that said, no, we're not actually going to leave. Um, and one of the reasons they're not going to leave is they get a distribution of about $50 million per year. So the money you know, works both ways. It's, it's um, keeping you know, football programs in line like Nebraska, but it's also underpinning the decision by by some of the conferences just to to press ahead regardless. Yeah, and so Roger, what um, kind of from your where you sit are the difference in policy decisions that we're seeing from leadership in different Power Five conferences? Like you had the Pac-12 and the Big Ten um, cancel their uh, conference football season, but you still have policy uh, leaders and decision makers in the SEC and other Power Five conferences holding out, uh, you know, what do you think is the real driving factor if everyone's in agreement that student health wealth or student health and safety and uh, is of primary concern? 
Yeah, so let's unpack that. There's the, the, the first thing I think that's really important to understand is that that um, athletic programs on campuses are um, they have a big visibility, but they have a small financial footprint. That's not where the big money is on university campuses. So take my campus, University of Colorado Boulder, just as an example. Um, in round numbers, our athletic department is about a hundred million dollar effort. Um, but it's in the context of a $2 billion university. So it's about 5% of the budget. Um, you go to truly huge universities, say take Ohio State, um, their overall budget is probably something like $8 billion, um, and maybe athletics is $200 million, something like that. So again, a real small proportion. So universities, uh, first and foremost, want to ensure that the, the, the real money, which is student tuition dollars, is coming in this fall. And so they've had to make some really difficult decisions. I don't envy administrators about whether and how to reopen. So if you take a school here in Colorado, University of Colorado, Denver, which is um, down the road from Boulder, um, they've gone all online and it's much easier for them to do so because um, they're a commuter school. And so their um, students aren't going there primarily for the, the, the residential college experience in Boulder. Um, Football, fall sports is part of that residential student experience. So if you look at the Pac-12, um, nine schools have gone all online, um, and only three, Boulder's one of them, uh, ASU and Oregon are the others, um, are having students. So since nine of the 12 schools are already fully online, um, they've basically told their their students, you know, you're not going to have a, an, an in-person residential college experience. So that, I think, made it easier for the Pac-12 to decide we're not going to have football. Um, there are um, other issues also, and we get more technical, there are liability issues. So let's say a football player, you know, the university presses on, and I'm sure we're going to see this if the SEC and Big 12 press on, um, and let's say they get sick or someone in their family gets sick um, and they sue the university for being uh, liable. Um, undoubtedly that's going to unfold going forward. And I think different universities have made different decisions about where their risks lie um, and how much they're willing to trade off the risk of students getting ill, um, both as a health standpoint um, and their institutional liability versus the benefits they get by pressing on and, and playing football. Um, it remains to be seen, you know, if the any football will be played at all, um, I think that um, what we've seen up to this point is kind of a game of chicken with the with the COVID disease is that uh, the, the schools are, are seeing how far they can go um, with hope. And, you know, hope is not a plan, but with the hope that maybe um, things will miraculously get better just around the corner. They haven't. Um, but I think uh, the programs that currently are planning to play are, are, are holding out hope that um, you know, maybe by the end of September, things will look better. You know, the Pac-12 has done the same thing, but they're saying, well, maybe by spring, things will look better. So I think it's all a matter of playing chicken with the virus and um, coming out on the losing end. Um, so we'll see. Um, and it's, it's, it's not really any different than universities making decisions about bringing students back to campus. Um, it's the same sort of calculus in terms of risks and benefit. Yeah, you know, that really hits home that hope versus plan, because I think that that you see at every level during this this COVID um, pandemic. It's not just universities having that same thing. It's 
elementary, high schools, grade schools, all that. It's other sports. It's it's almost like this process of hoping. And I think, you know, I, I'm, this is a slightly different topic, but I'm curious because I know you're up to date on all this stuff. Is how much of the planning do you think is, uh, or how much do you think it is actual plans that make a difference versus putting things in place that seem like they have a plan in place to almost give them the leeway, the justification to push forward on their hope. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the the experience with college sports this fall, you know, represents the triumph of, of hope over planning. Um, I, I looked back, I emailed uh, my athletic director on March 20th um, to you know, basically share some basic information on epidemiological curves and where we would be in August. It's not because I knew what was going on or had any special insight. It's that um, the dynamics of pandemics um, play out um, in some respects pretty predictably. Um, no one could have foreseen how bad the U.S. would have botched the response. So things are actually worse than than we might have anticipated in March. But where we are now in University decision-making and college sport decision-making should be no surprise to anyone. So, you know, right now the PAC-12, for example, is talking about um, getting a massive loan, $80 million per institution, so about a billion dollars um, to help them get through the, the, the COVID storm since they're going to lose a lot of revenue. Um, that didn't, did not have to be an August discussion. That could have been a, a March discussion. Um so a lot of the, the decisions that are being made kind of in haste, seemingly uncoordinated and so on, um, that's because we chose to, to make decisions in that fashion. Um, and it's a gamble. And I mean, and universities are doing this once again with the, the idea of having a spring season. Um, if you look at how the, the, the disease and virus is um, present in the U.S. right now, um, we can have a pretty good sense of how things are going to look on January 1st. Um, and it's not going to be good. Um, there's not going to be a vaccine. So this, the exact, if you're concerned about the uh, effects on the hearts of young athletes, which is one of the medical concerns that was raised this week, um, that is going to be exactly the same as it is today on January 1st. That's not going to go away. Um, there's not going to be a magic vaccine. Um, there's not going to be a scientific discovery that you know everything we knew was wrong. So I think we can pretty well anticipate that the decisions that the conferences are going to face January 1st are the same decisions they're facing August 1st. And the idea that we, you know, cross our fingers, close our eyes and hope we'll wake up after Christmas and everything will look great. Um, probably is not the most realistic approach. Um, it is comforting and it gives people, you know, some, some positivity going forward, but really college sports needs to be thinking on a two, three, five year plan at this point, not, not week to week, month to month. Yeah, Roger, Steve, I've been amazed uh, personally at kind of this hope strategy that has been often employed. I mean, Steve and I talked in the early days um, just about epidemiology and virology and how pandemics, um, you know, come out. My wife, uh, she's a physical therapist at a major healthcare provider here in the Northwest. And it's, it was very clear to me on, I think I sent out a tweet like, March 15th, 16th, or 17th, that we weren't going to have an Olympics, we weren't going to have a track season, we weren't going to have a Diamond League, we weren't going to have fall cross country, and we're not going to have indoor 2021, and we're not going to have outdoor 2021, um, just because of the way 
virus spreads, especially when we go more towards indoor quarters, which we will in the fall and winter. Um, and if people are choosing to be very reckless and cavalier with their um, ability to confront reality versus recede into this comfort of belief. Uh, you know, what, from where you two sit, you know, just your experiences or insights, like it's just fascinating to me that there's just this mass um, lack of, uh, I, I guess, desire or willingness or acceptance to accept reality and the timelines uh, that these types of pandemics um, have versus saying, well, let's just hope it gets better magically in a couple of weeks. Let's just hope it gets better magically. And to me, it, it just feels like a real failure of leadership and a real failure of um, just being fully, fully present in reality. But I'm curious, like, you know, I know, Roger, you also work a lot on climate change. Why is there this just mass um, psychological denialism when the data, the evidence, the research, the facts are very clear, but because we can't quote unquote see it, uh, we, you know, don't necessarily have to believe it. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things that we're learning um, in the pandemic is that, you know, sport is possible, right? If you look at the Bundesliga or the Premier League, um, they, they were the first out of the gate um, creating so-called bubbles. Um, you know, obviously Major League Baseball has had its difficulties. Um, I just watched uh, Serena and Venus play tennis. Um, you know, it's 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 possible to have sport in a pandemic if you respect, as you say, the reality of the pandemic. The problem with college sport is, um, and we can talk about this in depth, is that the athletes aren't professionals. So creating a bubble-like environment, which um, the NCAA president, Mark Emmert, raised as you know the next step if we're thinking about basketball, um, it raises a lot of questions about the compensation of athletes, their legal rights, health care, and so on, um, which it's different than the NFL and Major League Baseball and so on, where um, as part of their conditions of employment, um, if they want to play, then creating a bubble makes a lot of sense. So what we have is, a, is it's, a con- it's an institutionalized conflict between the realities of playing sport in a pandemic and the, the very fundamental structure of college sport, which, um, and it's no secret, which exploits young athletes um, for a lot of monetary gain that most of which does not go back to those athletes. So I think that's, you know, what, what the virus has revealed is, is this um, fundamental conflict point, which has always been there and has been talked about um, with respect to college athletes, but in the pandemic, it's, it's, it's unavoidable. I mean, think about it this way at at the beginning of the summer, um, everyone was talking about the importance of bringing all students back to campus Mm -hmm. so that we can justify um, college sports Mm -hmm. because it it would be unethical to say it's unsafe to come to campus, but you guys who have to practice for the football team, you have to come back to practice. But now we're having the exact opposite conversation where the discussion is, we have to get all these students off campus um, to make it safe to create a bubble for our basketball team um, so they're not in classes with other students, so they're not going to parties. Um, and so, you know, the, the needs of the broader campus are, are malleable de- depending on what administrators want to do with sport. So it remains to be seen whether the college structure will allow 
um, for sport as it has to be played in a pandemic. Um, and so I think the the discussion of the bubble for basketball players is going to be the next next big issue um, as we get into the fall. Yeah, let's pull on that like kind of amateurism thread a little bit. Um, you know, as you mentioned, like how does this moment force or accelerate um, ev- the evolution of this concept of amateurism? Or does it at all? Do administrators dig their heel into the ground and policymakers just say, nope, we're just going to make um, uh, amendments and we're just going to move forward, but we're going to maintain this this concept of the amateur status of the student-athlete? Yeah, so one of the things to, to understand is that the, the, the NCAA used to have a definition of amateurism, um, and it doesn't anymore. Amateurism is a little bit like a unicorn. Um, it's, it's mythological and we all have an idea in our mind of what it's supposed to look like. Um, but it's, it's more a vestige of, of the distant past than really anything real today. Um, and we saw this with the Olympic movement, you know, in the 1970s. Um, and I mean, the reality is, and everyone accepts this, is that college athletes are compensated. Um, they are compensated with an education. Um, they get something called cost of attendance benefits. Um, and on my campus, um, uh, Tad Boyle, who's a head basketball coach, uh, he, when he's visited my classes, uh, he says when he goes into the, the home of a recruit, um, he'll tell their family that what we can offer you is a package that has a monetary worth of about $300,000. Um, so you know, $60,000 per year. And the debate over quote unquote, amateurism is not whether athletes should be compensated or much it's, it, uh, or not. It's, it's how much that compensation should be. And what the pandemic has revealed is that athletic departments are um, not entirely, but very close to entirely dependent upon football programs to raise revenue, to pay salaries, you know, incredible, outrageous salaries of coaching staffs um, to pay the athletic director um, to, to have these wonderful facilities. Um, and it turns out that, you know, if these athletes are getting benefits of, um, $60,000 a year. I think there's a, a, a real concern that what they are contributing to the university versus what they're receiving in terms of benefits is, is out of, out of whack. And so that's why we see these continuing pressures on the NCAA, on the conferences and on the universities to, share uh, revenues um, more fairly with the people who are actually doing the work to raise them. And I mean, let's be clear. Um, Larry Scott, who's the head of the PAC 12 makes more than $5 million a year. Um, The head coach at my university, Carl Durrell makes more than $3 million a year. Um, His, his staff of 10 coaches. um, I'm not exactly sure what the number is, but it's something like $3.5 million that he can allocate to those folks. Um, the highest paid person in every U.S. state um, who's a state employee uh, is a football or basketball coach. So, so there, is a, there is a lot of money flowing into college sports due to the hard work of, um, of athletes. And um, if you look at the numbers and how it's shared, they get about 10 to 15 percent of those revenues. And you contrast that with, um, with professional sports the number is more like 50% of league revenues go to athletes. So obviously there's this disparity that's led to the conflict and it's, it's a labor conflict, pure and simple. And um, the athletes have a lot of untapped power to, um, 
to, to, to better their standing. And people can debate, you know, is $60,000 a year enough? Should they be happy with that? Um, and it's fine for people to have different views on that. But the, the reality is um, in any labor dispute, um, the people who have the power are going to be able to negotiate a better outcome for themselves. And do you think this pandemic, it seems like during the pandemic, players at least took some initial steps of realizing the leverage they have. Do you think that's this is going to be the catalyst for change? And if so, I'm just curious. I know this is a lot to unpack, but how? what do you think that looks like? Is the coach's salary, you know, administration bubble going to burst? The spending on, you know, slides and, the pre- and waterfalls and golf you know, stuff in the <laughs> mini golf things in the, in the practice facility is going to burst. Like what, what kind of does this look like in the future if we get to a point where there's more um, equity and revenue sharing? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really interesting because if you look at um, athletic department budgets um, it's a common, common uh, belief flawed that most athletic departments lose money. Um, that's because they spend all their money. And they often spend more money than they have. Um, And so this is why when the pandemic has hit, there are very few athletic programs that have a reserve Um, because that would having a reserve, putting money in the bank would imply you're making a profit and you have money that you're not distributing to to workers. So athletic departments routinely spend everything they have. And it's I mean, it's not a marketplace. Right. There's there's something like, you know, 60 P5 football programs. Um, that number doesn't go up. It's not like, oh, I'm going to start a football program and expand the market. So it's a limited um, supply of head coaching jobs. And if revenues keep going up because of the college football playoff and conference TV deals, that money has to go somewhere. So that's why we've seen the explosive, absolutely explosive growth of head coaching salaries, um, because it's a artificially constrained market and um, a lot of money's going into it. So, um, you know, my sense is that as we go forward, um, and I've said this for a long time, if, if the NCAA and the universities don't address the, 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 the disparities in sport between athletes, administrators, and coaches, it, then it's going to be done for them. Um, one possibility has always been the courts. The NCAA spends something like $25 million a year in you know, fighting legal battles. But it looks like in just this week, a um, number of, of, of uh, U.S. senators, bipartisan group, um, put forward legislation uh, called the College Athlete um, Bill of Rights. And it's, it's very possible that the U.S. Congress um, acts before um, court cases are resolved or the NCAA or the Conferences Act. And I always say, I mean, it's not just um, college sports, but, um, you know, once you get Congress involved, they don't, they're not going to, you know, manage college athletics with a scalpel, scalpel and with precision. Um, they're going to take a sledgehammer to it. And it, it could be a, you know, a drastic change to how things look. Um, and that's only because the universities, the conferences, and the NCAA have, have not acted. They've just fought uh, every every step of the way, um, changes to the model. So, what are your so one thing oh, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, uh, one thing I want to touch on before we um, maybe move into what that model or what sustainable model could work mm-hmm. is we've talked a lot about football and some of basketball, right? 
rightfully so, right? That's where the revenue comes in. I'm I'm curious in your standpoint, what do you think happens to Olympic sports as this kind of reshuffle occurs? And more, maybe the question could be more defined as, what do you think happened to Olympic sports if fall foot if all of football fall football doesn't happen, et cetera, et cetera? Um, because I know a lot of our listeners are track and cross country coaches and all that stuff, and this is the kind of big question going around: is what does what does it look like if um, if things don't occur and revenues aren't generated? Yeah, I mean it's a great question, and here as well, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings because one of the one of the talking points you'll get from, particularly from football coaches and, and administrators, is that football pays for the other sports, and that's just not true. Football brings in revenue, um, but if you're in a hundred million, two hundred million dollar athletic department, your Olympic sports programs are going to be you know, ten, maybe twenty percent of that. Um, and it's a little bit like um, the rest of the campus. So maybe the business school brings in a lot of tuition dollars, um, but it's not really appropriate to say that the business school pays for the philosophy department. Um, universities have a philosophy department because they think to be a legitimate university, philosophy has got to be part of that. So the, the answer to your question, the, I mean, the direct answer is the Olympic sports are going to look like universities want them to look like. Um, if a university wants to spend 10 to $20 million on a set of 10 sports that do not make a profit, well, guess what? It'll be like the music program at a university. It'll be like theater. Um, it'll be something that's valued because the university sees it as important to have. Um, and my, my sense is that tying Olympic sports to football or tying uh, women's sports through Title IX to football, um, it's, a, it's a nice political talking point, but it doesn't reflect the reality that um, in a university, broadly speaking, um, some programs make money, others don't. And the decision to support those programs is a matter of prioritization and resource allocation. So to the idea, like if all of a sudden, let's just say um, the University of Colorado Boulder, where I'm at, if let's say they decided to cancel football, would never happen, but let's say they did, um, that would have no bearing on a decision whether to support Olympic sports, women's soccer, you know, whatever. It would be um, a little bit like saying, you know, let's say we're going to close our, our, our business school. That doesn't mean that philosophy would have to go away. So, so universities have a lot of tough decisions to make about allocating resources. Um, and the idea that, that an athletic program um, has to support you know, certain sports based on the revenues of other sports, I think is, is, is a misaccounting of how things actually work. Um, you could easily say that, um, that the, the Olympic sports pay for coaches' salaries, right? Because uh, if, if that money wasn't going to the coaches, so at Colorado, it's like $16 million in coaching salaries. Um, if every coach made $100,000 a year, then you know, we'd have about $14 million to go to the Olympic sports. So, so we can play all sorts of fun games with accounting and moving money around um, on university campuses and within athletic departments. Uh, but there is no, there's nothing written in stone or scripture that says 
the revenues of this program go to support the activities in that other program. Um, University of Colorado has a $2 billion budget, Ohio State, $7 billion, um, Louisiana Lafayette, $150 million, um, and the administrators make decisions about where that money goes. Um, and it's just a matter of deciding what's important and what's not important. And in some respects, the idea that the Olympic sports are are being funded by football is, is, is kind of a hostage move, um, saying that if we were to affect the, 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 the funding model that football has, um, we're going to have to cut these things that other people love. So I think it is a, a, a straight up political play, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Yeah, I love that. That's a great explanation. One that doesn't get, you know, being in the college system doesn't get uh, thought through or explained that way. Because it is. It's often thought of, explained talking points of, well, football supports all of this. So, you know, like you should almost be thankful. Um, Even now during the pandemic, more than ever, it's like, um, all getting behind football, figuring out football first, and then we'll sort through the rest of the mess uh, because it's 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 almost like if we don't have football, then all of you are doomed is kind of the <laughs> the, the the sense um, right which it's you know which is kind of crazy when you put it in the frame of philosophy versus business school, like you said, um, yeah, it's just it's kind of um, kind of crazy hearing that and disappointing hearing people use that phrases and terminology. Yeah, I think long the Olympic sports have been um, thought of as, you know, kind of in this family tree, so to speak, and as like the, um, you know, brother or sister, like like the least favorite brother or sister of the offspring of the parents that is, uh, you know, the NCAA and the university um, conference system. And I'm really glad you um, brought that to light, Roger, because... I think that's what we have to remember. Like there is a bell curve of popularity of sports and the sports that are more contemporarily popular right now get a far wider share of revenues, but there is value in wrestling. There is value in golf. There is value in track and field. There is value in tennis uh, because people do all, you know, there are threads of the community and a populace that does really enjoy those sports. I mean, both Steve and I can test to that him being an NCAA coach currently, me being a former one. Um, you know, that, that was never a talk. Like I was at a university that had a really bad football team that always lost money. Um, but there was never any worry about us losing our jobs, us doing that. You know, the university at different times might have reallocated resources or um, pay grades or positions based off the money that that university at, on its own two feet as a whole had to spend. But there was never the sense if the football team lost or didn't produce a winning record. I wasn't going to get my like yearly cost of living increase. Um, you know, that, that never even crossed my mind uh, when I was an employee of an NCAA Division uh, One FCS school. Um, but what I like to do now, Roger, is just kind of we talked a lot about, uh, you know, different elements that got us to this um, current inflection point, so to speak. Um, but what are the, some qualifications from where you sit about how to sustainably move forward and create out of this chaos potentially a better um, governance and or policy and or uh, student athlete compensatory um, uh, schedule for student athletes of the future who will come out of this kind of crisis pandemic moment um, 
you know, whenever we do finally have a resolution to it. Yeah. And let me say, let me just maybe tie in what we were just talking about to, to that discussion. Um, the, the NCAA um, and conferences have requirements for how many men and women's sports each program has to carry in order to be um, qualify for membership. And the reason they have those requirements is that without a doubt, there are many programs across this country that would ax Olympic sports, women's sports, um, and, you know, focus in on, on football. Um, and, you know, some would focus on football and basketball, you know, some like university of Colorado Boulder might, you know, keep a cross country team going, but it's clear that the regulations, the NCAA and conferences have in place, um, you know, betray the reality that, that these other sports are carried only because of the regulations, not because, um, they're required. And, and, and to be completely fair and honest, um, a lot of universities would get rid of their social science and humanities programs also, um, and focus on, you know, science, engineering, mathematics, um, business law, because that's where the money is. So, so of course, um, you know, popularity, ability to raise money is, is a, is a clear factor, but looking forward, um, I mean, I think what, what the pandemic has revealed is the absolute centrality of football to the mentality of the college sports landscape. Um, it's not just money, but you, you know, it's, it's symbiotic. The, the big money of football, um, is, is intertwined, which is with its cultural significance. Um, and universities, um, particularly large state schools, residential um, experience. Um, football is central to being on campus in the fall. Uh, and I think everybody knows that. But but going forward, I think the way to think about it is there's two different models for, um, and I call it, I'm not the first, but it's big time college sports. So this isn't, you know, division three type stuff, but this is, you know, what do we do with um, the power five football programs, um, the, the schools that are uh, regularly in March Madness and so on, but we can go two directions. So we can go in a direction where athletic departments move further away from universities. So um, we've already seen this in some places like Florida State, um, where there's a, an entity that's created that's separate from the university administration to oversee sports. Um, but the, I mean, we have this this weird relationship where um, sports football in particular, are, are viewed as essential to the fabric of the modern university. Uh, my university is like many others. It has a, you know, a, a 50,000 seat stadium smack dab in the middle of campus. Um, when I have colleagues and friends come over from Europe, um, they're just agog, you know, there's a premier league size stadium in the middle of a college campus. Um, but at the same time, we pretend like sport is an auxiliary activity. It's extracurricular to what universities do. So one model is we we say, all right, it's it's they're really yes, professional enterprises and they should be run professionally. And so we're going to move them further away from the university. Um, we'll, as part of the compensation package, we'll give athletes, um, football players, lifetime scholarships. They can take classes all their life for free. They have a five-year window to play for. Um, and we're going to professionalize it. And they'll have contracts and agents, and it'll be just another professional league. Um, that's one model. And a lot of people are arguing for that, um, making athletes employees. Um, at the other end of the spectrum is a model where we bring 
athletic programs uh, more into the fold of the university. And so one way to think about this, and I've argued this for a long time, is, is maybe we should be giving degrees in athletics. Um, we give degrees in music. So to get a music degree at my university, um, about one third of your credits can be earned for, for playing an instrument and learning how to do that. Um, the rest of your credits are music theory, music history, teaching music, um, all the things that we would consider to be conventionally academic. Um, I can easily envision a, um, a degree in athletics where um, it's modeled on the music degree. So football players, um, and obviously to be a football player, you got to be pretty smart um, to, to learn a complex playbook and make quick decisions, leadership, and so on. So I think it's not at all unreasonable to suggest that um, if you can play the French horn, um, it's probably um, requires the same amount of uh, learning a skill as a, as a defensive back. Um, we do have a cultural bias in the idea that participating in sport is on a lesser plane than maybe the arts or, or music. Um, and we could unpack that also. But if the university were to award degrees in athletics, then um, they would have no problem saying that these are students. Um, and then um, the press for prof professionalizing sport would be much more difficult. Um, there's obviously a lot of cultural and historical barriers to going in that direction, but we've kind of split the baby with the approach right now. It's the idea that, yeah, these are, these are students. We use the term student athlete, um, which I don't use um, given its, its history. Um, but the idea is that they're, they're students, but yeah, they're also essential to this multi-billion dollar economic operation and, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I think the pandemic has, has revealed that that, that kind of halfway approach is just not going to work. Um, my sense is that there's going to be a lot of pressure to, to create a further division between athletics and the main functions of universities. Um, but I think we ought to also at the same time, think about, you know, is there a way to, to make athletics more a part of the universities reflecting the reality that we have these huge stadiums. Um, we love college sports as a, as a culture. So um, let's, let's stop with the, with the, with the lie that, that it's extracurricular. It's curricular. It is, it is something core to the modern university. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I like that uh, dichotomy there. Um, it almost thinks, <laughs> Maybe this is going too far, but it almost thinks it almost seems like um, the power five might go towards the professionalism. And then I could see the FCS group of five, et cetera, go towards integrating it. Um, if I was a, a guessing, a betting man or um, guessing the way forward as, as it kind of seems, but that's it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just kind of mulling that over in my head because I, I if you think of it, we have this we have this bias against athletic pursuits it, having any sort of like intellectual component to them. But it's like mind-body connection, all that stuff. It's it's like learning a skill whether that's baseball, football, you know, playing an instrument, etc. 100%. Yeah, 100%. You know, it it's it's the same type of deal um we just have this separation that is probably heavily culturally influenced 
Um, yeah, Roger, why don't we talk about that cultural bias um, and, and why don't you unpack that a little bit? Like, why do we have this strict kind of dichotomy and the separation between, you know, you know, athletes and we have this stereotype of athletes as kind of being, you know, dumb jocks or they take these, you know, rocks for jocks um, classes and what have you, when actually it is a really sophisticated enterprise, whether you're in basketball, football, swimming, tennis, to learn a very refined skill in a refined and varying context and execute that over and over and over again and deliver results. And yet we tend to just say, you know, it is this extracurricular thing. It's this on top of, uh, you know, what we consider formal education. And what are the kind of either cultural and or policy bodies to create that integration that you spoke of? Yeah, there's a few things I'll raise. I don't know how how coherent it'll be, but these are some of the, the, the issues I think that come up. One is to, people need to understand the, the origins of the notion of amateurism. Um, amateurism is a creation that came from uh, Great Britain in the 19th century. Um, and when uh, rich landed men were participating in sport, um, they didn't want dock workers and construction workers and, and, and other poor folks coming in, um, mainly because you know, they work with their bodies and um, were pretty good athletes and would win everything. So the original conception of, of amateurism as a requirement was to allow rich people who didn't have to work to participate in sport and to exclude people who, by virtue of having to work um, or not getting paid for performing athletics, keeping them out. And so we still have that vestige that, that, that amateurism reflects this ideal that we pursue sport because it's a higher calling um, and that we're doing it not because of the material or, or financial benefits, but because we love it. Um, and, you know, the, the Olympics went through this in the 1970s. And it turns out that if Usain Bolt can, can make a bazillion dollars um, as a professional athlete, we all still love watching him run. So, so the amateurism, amateurism is a part of it. Um, another part of it is that if you look back to the early 20th century at the U.S. universities, PE, physical education, was a required set of courses at almost every university. Um, and the reason for that was that the United States economy at the time was heavily agricultural based. Um, a lot of people worked um, in physical labor, even with university degrees. And so the idea that training a well-rounded person um, required um, getting academic credits in, in, in physical education. And as uh, the economy has evolved um, and we've moved more towards a services-based economy, um, we do have a hierarchy where um, working in pursuits that require using your brain are viewed to be on a higher plane than those um, involved using your body. So you could learn how to, um, I don't know, become an accountant. You become an expert in a spreadsheet, um, which requires some sort of memorization and some rote skills. Um, but you're a college football quarterback or a point guard on a women's team. Um, and who would argue that the, the skills required to, to be a quarterback or a point guard um, aren't at a higher level than, than operating a spreadsheet um, or at least the same? So, so we do have this, this idea that, um, that, that sport is, sits at a lower plane. Um, we didn't always have that view. And I think the other one, I mean, the elephant in the room, obviously, is race. 
Um, the reality is that you know, particularly college football and men's and women's basketball and um, also track and field, because that overlaps um, to some degree with those other sports, um, there's a much, much higher presence of black um, students in those um, programs than there is in universities as a whole overall. Um, and in some places like my university, University of Colorado, overwhelmingly so. And we can't escape from the fact that there is um, institutionalized and a legacy of racism in our universities. Um, it's, you know, universities still are uh, inaccessible um, to, to black students. And um, the fact that there's a higher proportion of black students in athletic programs, um, I think, you know, consciously or unconsciously in a lot of places, um, means that people place them on a lower plane than the rest of the university, um, which is you know, a sad statement about where our society is, but it's also one of the reasons why we view sport um, and big time college athletics in particular as something separate and different than what the rest of the university does. Um, but anyone who spends any time at all um, in an athletic program, spends time with students, sees what they do on a daily basis, what they're learning in, um, in the pursuit of their sport and around their sport, um, you cannot help to be impressed that these are some of the most impressive students um, on our campus um, because of what they have to juggle, what they have to do, and what they have to learn. I mean, basically, they're getting a degree in a sport without getting a degree. Uh, they're spending as much time on their sport as they spend on anything else in, in their college careers. So, Again, I think the reality of, of what athletes do in their programs is vastly different than um, how they're viewed overall. And that is, you know, a legacy of amateurism, um, the changing roles in our economy, but also the, the, the racial composition of, of U.S. universities. And, you know, Roger, maybe for you, uh, can you speculate, like, I just feel like in this moment, especially with um, you know, the Black Lives Matters movement, the botched response to the pandemic, this kind of last minute acceptance of reality, and then these kind of um, either rushed re like responses that we talked about with universities trying to get these quick loans to kind of float, us, float them through this lost revenue that was glaringly uh, a, real a very realistic possibility in March, but now being accepted as truth in August. Like, why are we having this leadership gap? I mean, that to me, I think, and a lot of other people is really frustrating is we have these really high paid administrators. You have these really high paid, um, you know, oversight committees. Um, but yet the ability to make those tough decisions and actually go first has resulted in this endless game of chicken and hope where, you know, we saw like once one, you know, conference or major conference, um, I forget who it was. I think it was the Mac, right, um, for college football. Once they decided to forfeit their season, it was kind of this domino effect. Or in the spring, when the Ivy League first forfeited um, the spring season, it created this domino effect. But why is it so hard for these decision makers and these conferences and the leaders to make that choice and move forward from this obviously grossly um, uh, 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 and high disparity paradigm that we've lived in for so long? Yeah, it's a great question, and you know, I wish I had the answer to it. The the the, the <laughs> I asked you to speculate, so yeah, yeah. The critiques <laughs> the the critiques of the the NCAA model, you know, they go back a long time, generation or two, um, and the cracks that have been exposed by the pandemic 
uh, by Black Lives Matter, by the athlete right movement, um, have been discussed and seen coming for a long time. But, you know, at the same time, Dabo Swinney at Clemson makes more than $7 million a year. Mike Krzyzewski makes, I don't know, $9 million a year. Um, the, the football coach at my university is the highest paid state employee. Um, the athletic director is number two. Um, it's been a good gig for people in the, in the system. Um, so, so of course they're not going to kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. Um, and at the same time, there has been, um, I think an interest in universities, um, supported by fundraising, by attention, again, by culture, um, to, to persist with this system, even though I think everyone knows that at some point it's going to break. But I think the hope is, well, it's, it'll break next year <laughs> or the year after. Not on my watch. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let it, let it ride. And the reality is, you know, the NCAA has given a lot um, in their legal battles, um, but they come out, you know, with the new definition of amateurism. Um, you know, we heard some years ago after um, the Ed O'Bannon case that the, you know, that distributing cost of attendance. Um, new benefits, something like $200 million across the country and additional benefits to athletes um, was going to break the system. We're going to see women's programs close. Goodbye, Olympic sports. And that happened. And none of that happened. <laughs> so, so, so I think, you know, the, the, it, it's like a lot of situations we see in policy that um, from the perspective of the beneficiaries, they're saying, well, if it's not broken, we're not going to fix it. Um, and now we're at a crisis point and um, all of a sudden Congress is paying attention. And so Congress is saying, this is broken. We're going to fix it. Um, where if the universities had taken the lead um, at any point in the last 20 years, they could have set up a system that was much more equitable, much more sustainable. Um, and now, you know, who knows what's going to happen? We're going to have a complete transformation of college athletics. Um, and it may look very different. I mean, we may have the SEC um, be uh, a mini NFL um, and spin off from the NCAA um, college football playoff. Um, you know, I, there was some some joke made by a coach I saw on Twitter who said that um, you know it, it doesn't matter if it's the ACC and the um, SEC playing football because they're the two conferences that are going to play for the national championship anyway. So we don't need those other programs. So it's it change is going to happen and. Um, it's, it's going to alter the landscape of college sport. And I don't think anyone knows exactly what's going to happen, um, but it's going to look different. And it's, it's unfortunate because they're making decisions in the context of an emergency rather than carefully thought out plans about how to evolve the sport. So, I mean, I, I honestly think it's going to take a decade um, for, for a new normal to settle in, in, in college sports. Um, if only because of the, the finances of uh, universities are going to be completely um, decimated over the next couple of years. How are, so, in your opinion, I, you know, can they, um, oh, go ahead, Steve. No, no problem. I was just going to say that it seems like your point there is almost that they've leaders, administrators, conference heads, et cetera, have been taking like a duct tape approach to the pro problem, right? Just, hoping that their their you know vessel can be duct taped together to last another year and then another year and another year and we've done this now for 
you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the line. I'm, I'm just curious, Roger, like if you were in a, if, if you were in a spot, let's say you're the head of the SEC or ACC or whatever power five conference, and you're facing the decisions that they're having to make right now um, in this pandemic, what would, what would kind of be your approach to making those decisions? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I said it, I'll emphasize, I'm glad I'm not an administrator in any of these programs. I mean, I guess it's, it's like the old joke, like if you're asking for directions, um, and you know, the answer is, well, I wouldn't start from here. Um, the, the very fact that we have regional conferences in sport um, has some historical and, you know, obviously cultural meaning, but, you know, what the, the NBA, the NFL, um, Major League Baseball have learned that if you're going to sustain over the long term a um, professional enterprise with competitive balance, you need a national scope. Um, I mean, look at Australia with um, Australia rules football and rugby um, played in different parts of the country. Um, If college football is going to survive as a national enterprise at the highest level, then um, the reality is, in my opinion, that they need to have a national conference um, and have the biggest schools, have Notre Dame, have USC. Um, and I don't know how many schools are in that top level, 20, 30, whatever. Um, but that allows them to make the plausible claim that, you know, this is big time. This is money making. Um, I mean, the reality is the Pac-12 is going gonna, is gonna to fall off the, the, the P5 map, uh, mainly because there's so few eyes at Pac-12 after dark <laughs> to, to keep up with the Big Ten and the SEC in terms of TV revenues and, um, you know, facilities and so on. So, so that's just not going not gonna to work. Um, I think that immediately um, athletes, and by athletes, I mean all athletes in athletic programs need to have a share of um, revenues that's closer to 50% than the 10 or 15% that they're getting. Um, Figure it out. Um, if, if the NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA can not just survive, but thrive with sharing that level of revenues with um, their workers, then I'm pretty sure the NCAA can also. Would it change, you know, big salaries and facilities? Yeah, for sure it would. Um, I think the universities have to decide, um, you know, whether they want to have uh, a Division One model alongside a Division Three model. Right, so lacrosse and skiing and cross country and water polo; those are great sports, um, uh, but they're not big time TV money makers. And so, um, you know, maybe we should think radically. Uh, we have medical schools, so there's at the University of Colorado Medical School. There's professors who make a million dollars a year. Um, there's students who are involved in developing um, drugs and patenting that have. Uh, licensing revenue um, going forward. So, you know, there's no reason to say that um, an athletic department has to have 18 sports. So I, I guess basically um, the first thing I would do if, if I had a chance to have a say is say, all right, let's take a step back. Um, and, uh, you know, we want to, we want to get to a better outcome, but we don't want to start from here. So let's re reimagine what college sport might look like. Um, I think the idea of, you know, crisp fall days on campus with a big football stadium. That's, you know, that's, that's a part of the culture of the American university. 
Uh, and that's probably not going to go away anytime soon. And, and we shouldn't expect that it would. But there are really a lot of ways to reimagine college sports on campus. Um, I would go down the path of exploring why, why aren't we uh, awarding degrees in athletics? Um, a lot of people want to become teachers. They want to become coaches. Uh, they want to become physical therapists. They want to become doctors. Um, all of that is perfectly compatible with a degree in athletics, just like a degree in music. Um, so um, I, I don't see any obstacle to that. So, so if we were to take the, I don't know, historical and institutional blinders off our eyes and say, all right, let's reimagine, let's expand how we think about college sports in a way that's more sustainable, but at the same time is matched up with the cultural expectations we have on university campuses. Um, I think we could get to a much better place um, pretty quickly. Um, but again, you know, culture, momentum, institutions are really, really hard to, to overcome. And I guess my concern would be that, you know, I, I applaud Cory Booker and members of Congress for, for taking a look at this, but, um, you know, congressional legislation is not the best route to having a deep, um, considered, expansive think about how the future might play out differently than it presently is. So we might have a pretty blunt set of outcomes that um, we'll have to deal with, um, and explore because no one knows exactly how those will play out. Roger, what type of leadership can say students currently, and even alumni who were student athletes in the past um, implement now or organize, or how can they organize themselves to have their voice effectively heard? And, you know, whether they're revenue generating sport athletes or Olympic sport athletes or alumni, I mean, what is the best path forward to, um, you know, help get that messaging and that voice out so that the decision makers who are, you know, making policy or shaping the direction we're going to go actually do have, you know, uh, vocal input rather than just say taking the social media on a cuff on a whim or having this very um, fractioned, uh, you know, very fractioned and very easy response that is one email or one tweet or something or one Facebook post that ends up just, you know, evaporating into the, uh, the internet ether. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things I learned. So I spent five years in our athletic department, um, creating an academic program and got to spend a lot of time with athletes. Um, and you know, as smart as they are, as concerned, there's, there's still college kids. Um, I call them kids. I got two college kids at home. Um, and the power differential between the NCAA, between the conferences, between university administration and college athletes is enormous. Um, in my classes, when I teach the history of the NCAA, um, one of the you know, most rewarding things for me was to see athletes' eyes opened up um, because you know, many of them think you know, the NCAA is uh, an institution built in granite. It's been here forever. It's always been here. It sets the laws under which I have to operate under. Um, it's an immovable fixture of the real world. And when you teach students that, no, the NCAA is an association. Um, it's made up of a group of universities, and they, they invent rules. These are not laws passed by Congress, um, much less tablets that come down from the mountain. And they realize that, that the decisions that have been made and the, the experiences they have as athletes are completely constructed by us. Um, then you get to start seeing, you know, their view open up that things could be different. 
but it's it's really unfair and unfortunate that um, athletes, um, as we've seen, you know, and it's 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 impressive, it's notable in the in the Pac-12 um, and elsewhere across the country organizing to demand, um, you know, certain outcomes. It's really that that's that on the one hand it's impressive, but it's also a sign of failure. It's a failure of the adults, um, of administrators, of professors like me, of people who who have standing, who know that the system is broken and it's going to break, um, allowing it to persist. So I would encourage all, I mean, the first, the most important thing for any athlete to do is to, and I, and whether they're an athlete or not, I'd say this to all my students is you better understand the, the, the context in which you're living. Um, you know, for, for some that might be, well, I need to understand the American political system and you've got to understand how business works. Uh, but if you're an athlete, you better understand how the NCAA works, but not just the NCAA, how your university works. Um, and unfortunately, to become knowledgeable and expert on these topics, it takes some time. So, you know, the, 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 the career window for a college athlete is five years. And if you're spending 50 hours a week on your sport, you're not really going to be focused too much um, or have much opportunity to, to understand these, these complex issues. So my view is, yeah, agitate for change, um, demand your rights, um, but we shouldn't expect the answers to come from those same people because it's just not fair. Um, and there are those of us who've spent you know, careers focused on these issues, I think have a responsibility um, to, to take the student leadership and, um, and leverage it, magnify it, because we're the ones who understand how these institutions work, institutions work and how they don't work. Um, and we can help. Because there, there's a lot of people who are, like myself, who, who value um, college athletics. Um, I went to the University of Colorado, and you know, I, I don't remember too many of my classes, but I do remember beating Notre Dame in the Orange Bowl. Um, <laughs> college sports is perfectly compatible with university, but we have to, we have to figure that out. And I guess um, I, I, I applaud the athletes and students um, and alums for speaking out. But I think the people who are the closest to the centers of power on campuses and conferences and so on, um, and including sponsors, people in the media, um, have an obligation to help them and, and help us all figure this out. So you've been very gracious with your time, uh, Roger. And I just want to add one more question before I think we wrap things up, which is getting at like actionable steps. So you mentioned what athletes can do there. We have a lot of college coaches who listen to this podcast. If you're in their, you know, in their shoes right now, looking at maybe their fall season got got canceled. Maybe they're one of those conferences where their fall season is getting pressed ahead and they're going to have athletes at practice, but they have flexibility. What do you what do you tell those college coaches who are going through this moment with not not a ton of guidance or leadership um, with answers coming from above. Yeah, boy, that's a tough one. I mean, one of the things that I've observed is that um, universities have, have in many cases built very high walls in between athletic departments and the rest of campus. Um, sometimes these are real walls. They're stuck in a building or a, you know, a wonderful facility, um, but they never encounter faculty members <laughs> very rarely. Um, and if they do, they encounter the NCAA um, athletic representative who usually 
um, you know, works for the athletic department. So I would say that it's really important. Uh, and this, and, and, and in reality, this is a source of power for administrators, um, whether they're sport administrators or campus administrators to, to keep coaches in line. Um, and there are rules for coaches contacting faculty members. Um, and I, I would say that if, if you're a coach and you don't have regular interactions with a wide range of faculty on your own campus, that's something that needs to be rectified right away. There are a lot of faculty, and, I, and I'll be honest, there's a lot of faculty who don't know anything about college sports. Some are opposed, some have a cartoonish vision, but you also find there's a lot of folks who value college sports um, on their own campus. And having discussions with those faculty about on our campus, how do we better integrate athletics and, and academics um, in a way that's more sustainable? Um, you know, it, it may not produce answers, but that's it, it's absolutely essential that we get athletic programs and the rest of the university to be more um, symbiotic. I mean, I tried to do that at, on my campus um, and didn't succeed, um, <laughs> but it's really important, I think, for um, coaches to not be on an island. Um, to think that they're doing something that's extracurricular to the university. They are curricular. They, they are absolutely essential um, to what the university does. So it's, it's, it's a small step forward. Um, but, and, and I guess the other thing I would say is that if, if your campus doesn't offer a course on the NCAA and the history of the NCAA and college sport governance, um, and there are, Courses like that that are offered at a lot of universities, North Carolina, Arizona State, um, we had one here, um, get one. And, you know, a lot of people in the coaching ranks are going to be among the most qualified to, to actually teach those courses. Not not NCAA compliance, but the policies that have shaped college athletics overall so that these students understand better um, the world that they're in. And if, um, you know, the coaches don't feel fully informed, then they should be taking those classes also. Um, my, my sense is that the more and broader discussions that we have on campus about college athletics, um, the more likely it is we're going to come to some shared understanding about how things can, can go forward. Um, and, and I mean, another way to put it is that college sports is far too important to leave to college sport administrators um, because we've seen what the NCAA and the conferences have done. Um, and that's you know, to, to move themselves further and further away from the, the overall mission um, of universities. Wonderful. I, I love that advice. I think that is uh, something well worth doing and something that makes me think as a uh, college coach uh, going through my mind on what uh, professors and uh, faculty that I interact with and if that's enough. So appreciate that, uh, Roger. This has been a fascinating, fantastic um, conversation. I think, I hope it's been really illuminating for listeners to, again, do what Roger just told us that was important, which is educate, learn, understand, so that hopefully we can take a active um, part in the shaping of whatever college sports ends up being. Yeah, Roger, thank you so, so much for coming on. I really enjoyed hearing you and just your perspective and awareness you have about a really important and uh, multifactorial issue. Where is a good place if people are interested in learning more about uh, your works or what you're um, 
focusing on right now to find you? Uh, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm readily found. I'm, I'm pretty out there on social media. Roger Pelkey Jr. on Twitter. Um, I have a book called The Edge um, about sport. Um, and let me just extend an offer. Any of your listeners, any coaches at any university anywhere in the country, you want to be in touch, um, just Google me. You'll find my email. Uh, send me a note. I'm happy to chat about these issues. Um, if I know anyone professionally on your campus, I might make an introduction to um, or off. Just be in touch because I think this is a really important topic, um, not just on my campus, but across the country.